AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 17th, 2017. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Hey Jim, how's it going? It's going well. Good to be back uh, on the show. Well, it's good to have you back, and uh, I understand you have some interesting Microsoft news that we're going to cover in a few minutes, uh, so thanks uh, for joining this week. And also on the couch, we have Matt Kaiser, one of our premier security analysts. How's it going, Matt? It's pretty good. <laughs> So I can't keep a straight uh, premiere, face. That premiere. That makes you laugh. It's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit much. Well, we premiere you all the time on oh, the show. Okay. <laughs> and in a Freaky Friday moment where Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson have switched seats, we have Brian Rexford on the couch uh, this week. How's it going, Brian? Ah, it's my pleasure to be here. I thought I'd try out being a guest for, uh, for a bit here and uh, learn from an expert in hosting the program. So oh, right. Glad right. to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm John Hogeboom, of course. And uh, let's jump into the first story. And I think it's one that you were looking at, uh, Matt, that had to do with uh, some new techniques to trick users into clicking on links that, uh, something with Gmail, I guess, we're yeah, phishing. So this article is kind of interesting. A company called WordFence put out a blog post describing a phishing attack where um, you ever use Gmail and they've got icons at the bottom of the mail when you have an attachment, right, a square right. thing. And you click it and usually it goes to like, you know, it'll download the file from Google Drive or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but in this case, clicking that actually opens up what's called like a, a URI, uh, a, a data URI. It's, it's got a format of data colon text slash HTML right, and the right, contents right. after that. And you know, we were talking before the show, you've, you've seen that used on websites. So if you want to embed an entire image without using an external file, right. you can use this and put the contents of that file after that, that little URI header at the start and it contains it all within the one file, right. which is kind of a neat trick. But here what they're containing is actually an HTML web page made to look like the Google login prompt. Uh -huh. So, and the way that they do it is it, the very start of that data, you know, if you've got an HTML file, it only renders what's in the, the, the tags. So they're putting something that looks like a, the URL for Google. Yeah, I noticed on the example you show here. Yep. So it's kind of neat. So they have the data text HTML header, comma, you know, HTTPS accounts at google.com, but after that, a whole bunch of spaces, and then the HTML right, content actual, starts, right, right. and that's what gets rendered in the you know in the browser. So you look, it looks like you're actually at the Google login right. prompt. So as a user, you see the URL that looks like it's the right place, but it's not really. Right, and so that's yeah. the trick. That's the thing to look out for is that the very start of it has that data colon text slash HTML. If you see anything that looks like that, that does that's not HTTP or HTTPS or anything you're used to looking for, you know, stop and look right, for a right second. Right at the beginning. If yeah. it's not right at the beginning like that, yeah. that's an indicator so, of problem. And the, the article goes on to say these are the things you should be used to looking for, especially if you're logging to a site like Google or Gmail. They would have an HTTPS setup, uh, and you look for the little green icon there instead of this whatever text.html junk at the beginning. It's another thing to look out for that people may not be aware of that it exists in the first place. So I thought I'd share it. Right. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to reinforce the point. Anytime you're logging into a web page, it doesn't matter who you're logging in with. Yeah. Anytime you're logging in on a web page, it should have the green icon indicating that it's an encrypted session. Mm -hmm. Right. 
with a valid certificate, hopefully, too. That's with a valid certificate, <laughs> yeah. When you start getting certificate complaints, you want to really think twice about whether that's a, a valid site or not. You know, occasionally sites will have expired certificate. I guess in that case, what I recommend is come back later. <laughs> All right, or, or Send them an email and say, hey, update yeah. your SSL certificate, right. expired. But it's true, you know, if someone was to make a phishing site that had a valid SSL cert, um, you'd have to be extra careful to look for that, and it's not as easy to tell. But if you see this, this data text HTML at the start, that should be a, a red flag yeah, for anybody. Yeah. That should be pretty obvious. Although, you know, you never know. Sometimes you're just not paying attention, or you're going fast, or it's first thing in the morning, and you're just cruising through your email, and you get snagged. So you got to be wary at all times when mm -hmm. you're, uh, especially as these attackers come up with new methods to try to trick you. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a good one. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Uh, so the next story we have is something you were looking at, Jim, and Microsoft's making some changes to the uh, Microsoft Tuesday, I guess, it sounds like. Yeah, uh, they actually made some changes in the fall that I'm not sure if we ever really talked to, about them. But uh, they're making some changes in February that are going to be a radical change from what they've been doing since 1998. When they rolled out Windows 10, the one of the things that Microsoft did was they said, Essentially, basically, you were going to get all of the updates in a bundle. You wouldn't be able to pick and choose if there were seven patches this month. You'd have to apply them all or nothing. And then they started doing that for Windows 7 and Windows 8 in, I think, October or something like that. Mm -hmm. So Microsoft's point was, if it's all or nothing, then why are we doing for? bulletins for patches will just do one page that contains information for all of them. And so what we've been used to since 1998 of all of the, all of the bulletins for the various things that are getting patched starting in February on February 14th, I think is uh, whatever the second Tuesday of February is. Um, they're not going to send out a bunch of bulletins. You're not going to see MS 017-0056789, whatever. They're putting all of the information from the updates in what they're calling the Security Updates Guide, which is uh, a web page that they've actually been running for a couple of months alongside the old bulletins, uh, which is supposed to be the one one place to go look. You can still find the, the KB, the knowledge base documents for each of the individual bugs that are being patched. But, you know, since it's an all or nothing thing, they're not going to, they're just putting them in this one spot and not doing the multiple um, bulletins. In theory, that sounds good. Uh, the guy who was interviewed for the Computer World article, um, Chris Gettle from Shavlik, um, is a little concerned. He said he's been, uh, for the last couple of months, comparing what's in the bulletins with what's on this security updates guide page. And... Uh, 
as of the patch Tuesday in January, there were some things that were in the bulletins that weren't in this online database, which mm. is a little concerning. Um, some of the things that were missing were apparently some pieces of what exactly was being exploited. So some of the indicators that you might look for to see if you're vulnerable. So the the jury is still out on whether or not this will be a good thing. I think ultimately it probably will be the first month or two as Microsoft is working out some of the details, you know, some of this crucial information may not be there yet, but um, it's going to be a change. Uh, it's going to be a change to the way we've consumed the patch information from Microsoft for nearly 20 years now. So uh, it's, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I'm resistant to change. So uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with this. But I've been very used to being able to like, I know how to read the Microsoft security bulletins and scan through it very quickly and try to figure out, uh, is this one that is important to me or whether it's not? Mm -hmm. And if it's not represented in a similar way, I might get really annoyed or mad. But mm -hmm. I guess uh, I'll adapt eventually, so. You'll adapt. You think about Otherwise adapt. you're in the wrong business. <laughs> Yeah, and you know one one of the nice things if if they get it all if they get the bugs all worked out is you know this is supposed this new database is supposed to you know let you filter by CVEs by knowledge base article number by product by release date they've got a RESTful API so you could you know write yourself a Python script to to query it and pull back just the information that you're interested in. So it's got some possibilities once they get the, the kinks worked out, mm -hmm. but I am a little bit concerned, uh, as the gentleman from Shavlik said, if some of the information that was in the bulletins isn't in the database yet at the moment. Yep. I guess the facetious side of me is wondering if this will help you figure out more easily how you got hacked. Um, how... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking it to... might make it easier for attackers to figure out what should I target that's vulnerable to certain exploits. And perhaps automate the process a little bit more. Right? Uh, I can I mean, write that my works own script in a good sense say... as well as a bad sense. That, that, the, uh, the notion of automation, in fact, you know, a lot of the uh, work around the concept of cognif cognitant cognit cognizance, <laughs> you know, machine cognizance, and to be able to use that as a means to help provide security protection planning you really have to have automated means to do it. I guess the, there's work in being able to use unstructured data and doing it, but the, the more it's structured, the better off you're going to be in that sense. So perhaps this is a little bit of a precursor to being able to go down that path. Right, that's true. And I'd be surprised if they didn't have a lot of this data already in some sort of database, but you know, I can't imagine all that stuff that's represented on their website is all just text flat files, but maybe, who knows? Um, yeah, anyway. I, I guess I, I should mention that Microsoft actually did announce in back in November that this was going to be happening. Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't really noticed it, though, until this Computer World uh, blog post uh, a week or so ago that uh, notif reminding us that the change really happens in February. So. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I guess we'll all keep an eye on that one and see uh, how our mileage may vary uh, our experience with uh, the Microsoft Boltons as we go forward into February. 
Um, so the next story we have is uh, something about the WhatsApp. And I don't know if we covered uh, last week because I wasn't here. But no, I don't... why don't you tell me what's up with WhatsApp? Oh, yeah. You like that? I, I like that. <laughs> it's pretty good. So last week there was a big story in the news. The Guardian had reported that there was a backdoor in WhatsApp's implementation of the Signal protocol. Now, Signal being a protocol and an app developed by Open Whisper Systems, mm -hmm. uh, which helps you, it's, it's encryption for text messaging and the like. It's right. very, so WhatsApp is like a, a text message application that you put on your phone or mm -hmm. other device. You can text message back and forth, but encrypted. Right, with, and it had been along, around for a while without the Signal protocol. It was just implemented, I think, sometime in the last year. Like, okay. don't, don't hold me to that. But the, the Guardian had reported that there was a backdoor, and they used the word backdoor, in the way that key changes were handled in Signal, claiming mm -hmm. that it was possible for someone to change the keys that two users were using without the users realizing it, therefore getting a man in the middle on that message, that, mm -hmm. that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a big deal. And, and I actually had read the Guardian article. I was kind of surprised that it existed. I was telling people, holy cow, there's a back door. Uh, what I should have done in the first place was gone directly to the horse's mouth, which would be Moxie Marlinspike, head of Open Whisper Systems. I believe he's head. Uh, but he's at least one of the best well-known guys on that team. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had his own blog post. And he states flat out, there is no back door. And it goes a little bit into the technical details. The short version of it is there's a, a bit of a difference with the way Signal, the app, and WhatsApp handle key changes. In Signal, when a key changes, users are notified. So if I send you a message and my key has changed, your phone will say, hey, hang on a second, Matt's key has changed. You should probably go and talk to him before you accept any other messages claiming to be from him. And you and I would talk in real life, and we'd compare some notes on our phone and say, OK, I've got this key number. You want to update? OK, fine. And that and you technically should be pretty rare that yes. when you're conversing with somebody that a key would change. It's not right. like every time you talk to them that's going to happen. It would be well, pretty rare. So unless if it you've did got, happen, you would. <laughs> unless you've got good friends like we know who like to play with right, change you know, their Android devices ROMs all the time. every night. And uh, I hope he watches this episode <laughs> so he understands exactly how annoying it is. Um, but most regular users, but most don't regular users their it would that almost often. never happen. Right, right. right. Um, but with WhatsApp, instead of preventing you from continuing that conversation, WhatsApp says, "Hey, by the way, you know, some the keys have changed, and it lets you keep talking." And it shows you, like, as in your text message stream, it puts a little yeah blob, like another little bubble in there. It says, "Hey, your key, the keys changed." Now, I'm, I'm not so a WhatsApp user. It. it might be an option that can be turned on and off. I'm not sure about oh, that. Okay. But suffice to say that there is a notification that's possible. So it's not really a backdoor so much as a user experience change, which is right. what Moxie's stating. And I, I agree with that. Um, so it's not really a backdoor. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I figured I would try and clarify that a little because it was a huge big deal. People were having a bit of a fit about it last week. Right. Um, and I'd say go read Moxie's blog about the subject. If there's any technical details I've gotten wrong, he's almost certainly gotten them right. So it's not really a backdoor, but if you are a WhatsApp user and you see in a conversation that you're having with somebody that the keys have changed, that should be something you're like, well, wait a second, maybe I should yeah, no, talk to this person to make sure, did they change their device? Right. Or did something happen? Or is somebody really trying to, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, jump into our our Conversation. conversation. And, to, and one of the things that Moxie points out is that there is an indicator, uh, a double check mark. Once a double check mark appears on a message, neither WhatsApp or Signal, it's not, you can't replay that message to somebody else. So all past messages shouldn't be affected if there is a key change. So that's okay. good to know. Right, right. So yeah, even if the key, only the ones that haven't been double check marked would be replayed. Right, anything going key. forwards from when the key changes is noticed would okay. be the ones you'd have to worry about. Okay. Yeah. 
So I guess stepping back from this, just sort of looking at it, you know, one of the things that has generally been the trend in the past is there's tended to be a lot of attention to the algorithm that gets work, used for encryption, you know, whether it be, you know, Blowfish or AES or whatever. People are always concentrating on the, you know, the algorithm and what the key length is and things like that. This is an exaggeration, but 99% of the time, the problem isn't the encryption. It's the key management. Right. Or implementation. And this right. is an example of where, at least my perception of it, I haven't studied it in detail, but it appears to be where it's, it's almost an unfinished key management. That is, we just talked about certificates right, and the, you know, for SSL connections or TLS connections where you get the indicator that the end, the owner of that key has been authenticated or verified by an authoritative source. Yeah, I mean, depending on what you refer, you know, consider to be an authoritative source, but the the uh, the root keys that are in the browsers are considered authoritative sources. This is a case where that type of infrastructure hasn't been put into place, right. and so you don't know who owns that key. You have to manually validate whose key that is, mm -hmm. and um, it, you know, it's just uh, what I would describe as the user experience is complicated because it's sort of unfinished security. They didn't put all the pieces together, perhaps in the future though. I think that some of that was that intentional. With WhatsApp, I think there was a comment. In the, in the WhatsApp case, the comment was basically they, they had a larger user base. They were trying to tailor it more towards usability than necessarily mm -hmm. ironclad security. So okay. things are there, but usability took a, the, the primary well, It's a matter of perception yeah, because it's yeah. relying on the user's knowledge to make it more usable or, or to be able to provide the security that is yeah. intended and to be there. That's a hard problem to solve, especially yeah. with cryptography. Like most people don't have a background in crypto or even a basic idea of what public mm -hmm. key, private key is. You know, trying to educate them on the fly, but if you're using Signal, maybe you can assume that you have a little more education on the subject. I don't mm -hmm. know, uh, mm -hmm. but always interesting. That's interesting. It yeah. seems like there should be a solution around this by managing the, your public private key yourself and then I don't know, but whatever. A, there's, a, there's a few places you can go to do um, decent public key sharing. I think Keybase is one of them. And then mm -hmm. Google actually had something called key transparency. I've, I've read a little bit about it, not enough to really discuss it intelligently, but the whole idea is a way that you can effectively share your public keys where they need to be shared. So there's some work being done in the area. Hmm. Okay, yeah, it's uh, yeah. interesting. I, I've forgotten the name of it, maybe you remember it. There was, a, there was actually a, a sort of a community-based trust model that was created some time ago. I think it was ultimately... PGP Web of Trust. Um, I think there was something that was a little bit more formalized that than that, but it was the concept around that based on who you know, you could become basically a, a voucher that is be able to vouch for other people's identity. And it was kind of a cool little model hmm. that was built up. I think it got just a little bit over formalized and kind of collapsed on itself over time. But uh, the uh, that whole idea of being able to, you know, I'm in this community, I know who that is kind of thing and be able to validate other people's keys. I guess the other thing to sort of point out for your friend that seems to like changing keys a lot, um, he would probably need to type text messages for about a million years before he would actually exhaust the key space that's in there. Now, I guess the one benefit of changing the keys is that if you lose one key, you would only lose that mess the messages that are in that space of that key. Yeah. But more than likely, unless they actually get deleted, <laughs> you'd lose all the keys together anyway, because wherever those keys are stored, they're 
Well, I think it's some, one place. <laughs> the key changes are not something he's not consciously going. I'm going to change keys again today. It's it's a function of signal. Oh, is that what it so is? anytime so you make a major change like that, it says, well, I, I don't trust that I'm the, really the I same device. It. It's time it. to get new keys. All so. right. Well, I retract my. And course. I don't know enough about <laughs> signal, but it seems like you should be able to like move your key pair, your private key over yeah. to your new device. That's a good question. And then it should just carry forward. But maybe they don't have that built in there, like this key management like you're talking about. So I don't know. Well, but again, concept, I don't know Signal. That's so. that concept. It's one of my little pet peeves is that in many cases, the, the user experience associated with security is what I interpret to be unfinished implementation of the security. That is building a trust model that is transparent to the user, building the capability to be able to transition between devices without having to go through fancy gyrations or having to generate new keys. Those are things that, they're, it, it, it's not easy, but there are things that could be done to actually fix those things. Right, right. Okay, cool. Well, I guess yeah. we'll... Uh, It'll be on. interesting to see how this <laughs> evolves over time to see if they make uh, changes or yeah. improvements to it or if it, you know, maybe they consider it good enough and that's... A, that's okay too. Yeah, I really, I don't use it myself, but I don't really, if you want to see my text messages, just knock yourself out. They're not that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving on to the internet weather uh, for this week. Um, there's, it's basically dominated by IoT junk. Mirai, all these other, uh, you know, botnets, like li yeah. the Lizard Squad ones, et cetera. Uh, 23 TCP, as we've talked about before, Telnet scanning. 22 TCP is SSH scanning. Uh, this 23231 TCP is associated with a telnet port on these Dahua DVRs, uh, mm -hmm. security cameras. Uh, 7547, which we've talked about before, is um, the CPE WAN management protocol, CWMP. Uh, we're going to take a closer look at all of these, really. Mm -hmm. uh, 1900 UDP is a simple service discovery protocol. That's probably people looking for devices to be used as reflectors more than exploit, but I'm not really positive. Yeah, uh, but, but I'll point ahead. out, you know, one of the things that we were conjecturing about a little bit last week was mm -hmm. the notion that perhaps there's uh, an attempt to try to manipulate the natting on devices and for devices that have that protocol exposed to the Internet. SSDP, that, you mean? SSDP. Okay. There's a... Uh, a, a a potential that, that that could occur. I don't yeah. think we've done any studies into specifically whether it could occur or not, but that's I have uh, not, um, but concern. you're right. I think that there probably is, because uh, that's kind of what it's for, mm -hmm. is on the land side, right? To like be able to client machines, or, right? Or, to say, I want you to open yeah. a pinhole port for me or whatever other mm -hmm. types of things. So um, anyway, uh, 6789 TCP is another telnet port, if I remember right. We're gonna look at, I have slides on each of these. 3389 TCP is remote desktop protocol. We see that one a lot. 53 UDP DNS, probably looking for DNS reflectors. Yep. 37777 TCP, go. did I get it right, That's the number of sevens? <laughs> that is a special port for Dahua DVRs again. So Dahua is showing up on the list a couple of times here, and we'll take a closer look at all these. As to why that is, uh, I have some theories. You guys talked mm -hmm. about some stuff last week, um, but we'll, we'll jump into there. Mm -hmm. um, this is the most sources probing, which is also indicative of botnet-related activity, which IoT stuff has been all recruited into these botnets. You know, very splinter groups of botnets. They kind of shift back and forth as people steal them from each other because there's 
you know, population of IoT devices out there. And it seems like, we were talking about before the show, people have kind of, they're expanding out to other avenues more than just the 23 TCP telnet brute force password guessing. They're trying a lots of other techniques to get pools of vulnerable devices recruited yeah. into their botnets. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the um, it, it, it was very simple before. We were seeing, a, you know, basically a set of passwords that were being used that were not very complex, not even a big, huge list of passwords that they were guessing. It wasn't even really a brute force password guessing. It was somebody learned the administrative password. Right. It's like the 30 password different passwords devices, they tried. They were going and, yeah, checking in. <laughs> You'll and, probably and get in at 90% of them. Devices, almost always on really basic ports. Since that Mirai software has become available, it seems others have entered into it. Perhaps, as you had alluded to, the competition for devices has risen. And so it appears that there is a diversity and a significantly more technical advancement in looking for different ways to exploit these devices or expand the repertoire of devices that could be exploited. Right. Yep. Um, most of the ports are the same here. I think the only exception is the 445 TCP, uh, which is Windows file sharing related to that. Mm -hmm. Could be people are just looking for open Windows systems that have their anonymous, so you can go access them. Amazingly, or it could enough, be it the, like, the Configur exploits yeah. and things like that that are still, you know, there used to be. I can't. It's kind of old. Was it MS 08067 something uh, like it that? It was. It was a while ago. It was. Uh, I think it was 2012. Was if it? I remember correctly, but uh, it's certainly been around a while. It appears that there are still devices that are infected with that malware. Oh yeah, there are devices. But the I think more, uh, at least as much a possibility, is that there are devices that are scanning and looking for Windows machines that are exposed to the internet with weak file shares. You know, if a Windows machine is exposed directly to the internet, there's a good that's possibility pretty... it has weak file shares. Yeah. And so that's <laughs> a uh, that's one of the things that uh, they tend to be looking for. Uh, it could be either of those possibilities, certainly. Yeah, well, and the, think back to when we started this show, you know, a, a few years back. For the first couple of years, 445 was always the top port on that. It was always mm -hmm. the top port. And now for the last couple of years since the Telnet stuff took off, you know, it's been down there in 7, 8, 9, and sometimes not even on the graph. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, that's very true. Um, but like you're saying, here's the Telnet chart. And as you, this is just a one year. Um, I think I've done three years before where you can see nothing going up to uh, these volumes. And when we look at this, this is the number of scan sources. So, you know, last year we were seeing hundreds, you know, maybe 100,000 scan sources which, per hour, which is mm -hmm. pretty significant in and of itself. That was probably still the number one number of scan sources uh, in terms of like a botnet mm -hmm. that we'd seen. But now it's like really gone off the charts where we're seeing upwards of 400, 450 at times. Now it's kind of down around 250,000 per hour, mm -hmm. uh, but still um, significant number of these devices. Well, and I think it's important to point out, I don't know if we've mentioned this very often, but the, um, the botnet isn't necessarily scanning or not the entire botnet necessarily scanning. Right. It is, they may have a segment of the botnet that's used for scanning, trying to recruit new devices, another segment that's perhaps even just in reserve, you know, ready to go, but not really doing anything. And then another segment that actually is perhaps sold off or delegated out doing to do, DDoS, some, do, do yeah, whatever work of whatever type it Bitcoin is. Bitcoin mining. 
And uh, it is also <laughs> important to consider the fact that it's mostly DDoS attack activity that the community is generally aware of, but that is not necessarily the constraint of these devices. No, they could be used for uh, ex you know, siphoning traffic off from the device that might be going through or to use it, I'm referring to a case where maybe it's like a small office or a home office router that has been compromised. There's other traffic that's going through there that could listen in on yep. um, or siphon information off of. And then uh, another example, perhaps if it's a uh, uh, security surveillance camera DVR that's sitting behind a firewall but has the port open to the internet, well, now you've got an inside device that could be used to peruse around on the LAN side, which may presumably be otherwise considered a secure environment. Right, and you could laterally move around, potentially. Laterally move around, things like that. Um, yeah. And like you said, some of these, you know, we're seeing large botnet activity, but there are some actors that are using some of these devices for mm -hmm. other purposes. Well, and, More, and because, very discreet, yeah. you don't know what's happening, mm -hmm. they're just using it as a hot point for mm -hmm. certain types of activities uh, that are very low bandwidth, very yeah. low, you wouldn't even know they were happening unless you're really paying attention. The reason we see this, the botnet activity mostly is because it's very noisy. DDoS, scanning, mm -hmm. when they turn them into those types of things, they're very easy to see because yep. they make a lot of noise. But there are ones that get compromised and other types of actors are doing other things on them. Well, and those are likely more selective scenarios. True. That is, uh, the, in the botnet, you know, resource management tools, uh, they may be taking a look at where these are located and considering which ones might be lucrative targets. Um, you know, through reverse lookups or, uh, you know, t other types of activities. So even though there are organizations that are running honeypots that are observing the activity that's associated with it, the ones that are selected out may be the only ones that get malware payloads that are associated with other activities. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm conjecturing, this is a lot of conjecture yeah, yeah, on my a, part yeah. here, but the point is, is we shouldn't be complacent to say this is just DDoS botnet activity. No, no, it no, could no be, definitely not. It could be much more than that. Absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move along here. Uh, so the scanning activity on 23231 TCP, there's uh, definitely a correlated association I've seen. If you look at Shodan and you look at this port, there's a bunch of devices, uh, Dahua DVRs in Brazil, uh, a couple of other countries too, but there's a big pocket of them in Brazil mm. listening on this port and it's a tel telnet port. It's like an alternate telnet port. So I don't know if that's like some uh, OEM manufacturer that has opened this um, that's using, I don't really know, but there's, it's definitely being used as like a telnet password mm -hmm. guessing port. So that's what they're going after there. And it's been shown that those are Dahua. They actually identified themselves as that if I remember right, on the Shodan uh, data. Activity was pretty significant. You know, it looks like they did a little scan early on here, back around maybe December 8th, December 8th or so of 2016. Uh, it looks like they kind of determined that looks interesting. And then somewhere right before maybe 12-20, uh, December 20th, they really started going crazy scanning on this. 6789, also around December 18th, they started scanning on this port. This is also another alternate type of Telnet port uh, on Dahua security cam DVRs as well. So I don't know really why there's so many different ports, but maybe, like I said, it could be different OEM manufacturers are opening mm -hmm. different ports for administrative purposes for this. That one is also being scanned pretty heavily lately. And uh, the 7547, um, this was kind of, this is kind of interesting. We've been talking about this one. There, there was the incident that occurred 
in Germany, I forget what the Deutsche Telekom Deutsche had, a, Telecom uh, had an issue. Thing. There were some other ISPs that were. And there were a few well. models of devices that actually, while well, they were exposing the TR64 land side management protocol. Over the TR69 at the same time. Right, on the land. same, right, which mm -hmm. they shouldn't be exposing that. And um, so there was also an exploit that was available uh, on some of these devices when they're, you know, uh, not all, obviously not all of them, but the ones that mm -hmm. did expose it incorrectly. And then they had this service implemented incorrectly, had kind of almost like a little shell shocky vulnerability, which mm -hmm. in our honeypot, we actually, cause there's a lot of scanning on this, right? So we see in our honeypots, people trying to hit this port. So we just grabbed whatever they're trying to send to it. Um, and we could see that um, this is an example of what we received. And it's kind of interesting cause in, um, in red here, I've uh, highlighted what it actually looks like. So they're sending a post request to the uh, CWMP port on port 7547. And uh, in here, they're trying to reset the NTP servers uh, using the, the command set NTP servers. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, on NTP server one, they're actually, instead of putting an IP address in there, they're putting a back quote and then CD var temp, semicolon, CD slash temp, and then they do a TFTP to go retrieve it, and then they do they run shell to actually run the file B. So they're basically mm -hmm. they're trying to retrieve this file named B from this website or this TFTP server, and then they execute it. And that's how the machine would get infected mm -hmm. if it was exposing TR64 and had this bug where they're not sanitizing input properly, because this is like... Um, uh, uh, OWASP, like, yeah, you know, 101. <laughs> if you're taking input from a third party as you know, part of your service and you're not doing any sanitization of input before you do something mm -hmm. with it, um, you those know, are not numbers. Those are not, that's not an IP address, <laughs> nor is it a domain address. name. Right. So I don't know how, like, whatever, whoever wrote this thing that's parsing yeah. this and doing something with it in the back end of this device yeah. uh, has a little bit of a bug. I think it's perhaps, uh, and again, this is, uh, I'm, I'm reading into this just a little bit, but it appears that because this affected more than one brand of device and more than one model of device, it appears that there was perhaps some sort of a shared code base that was yes. used in multiple devices or a reference implementation of the protocol. So it appears that others may have a similar problem, but it may not exhibit the same sort of response. And so uh, in some cases, I've at least heard that there are cases where it just causes the device to act erratically as opposed to actually joining the, joining the botnet. Right. Um, but in either case, it could create some havoc. Right, some other board. vendor implementations might get this and go, ah, I don't know, and they just crash, as yeah. opposed to, like, I think that actually happened with Deutsche Telekom. I can't remember, but I, I don't know something happened where it actually... Yeah. Yeah, my understanding was they weren't vulnerable to the attack, but they they got this traffic and it caused some other unexplained phenomena. Right. Yeah. So, you know, something might get this and say, ah, I don't know, and it just, instead of actually getting affected and doing what this wants mm -hmm. it to do, it just crashed or something went haywire. Yeah. And then there were large um, swaths of the, uh, you know, in the global internet where this was actually causing them to be part of a botnet. Right, right. And the other thing to mention is that the third part of this, this um, perfect storm of, of bugs is that these weren't authenticated, these requests. Right, yeah, none yeah. of this is authenticated. You just yeah. whoop, shoot it in there and you're good to go. Yep. Um, speaking of unauthenticated requests, so this last port, uh, 37777 TCP, 
is been associated with Dahua. So if you look on this on Shodian, you see tons of them. When you look at them, it's the it's a Dahua DVR service port. I did a little searching around and I found some blog posts from like 2013 that was talking about you can interact with this if you figure out how to talk to it. Um, and it's mostly for management. Uh, it's their own management protocol. It's not like an HTTP or something, but you can um, uh, interact with this port and you know get the configuration off of it, change some settings on the device, um, even reset the password uh, mm -hmm. on the device and things like that. I don't know that that's what they're doing here because um, I haven't actually been able to capture one of these in our honeypot, but um, uh, it's a possibility and I haven't mm -hmm. validated that that's the case either. I think last week you were talking about it looked like they might have been trying to change some universal plug and play things perhaps. Yeah, it, um, you know, I think it's still it, it's still under because it, there were, I guess, discrepancies pointed out that appear that the type of activity they're trying to perform would be valid for a security surveillance camera DVR. Perhaps uh, it might be valid for a home router. It looked like they were trying to manipulate the firewall controls or something okay. along those lines. And so, uh, I don't think we ever came to a conclusion about what is actually taking place. There were there were some. Excuse me. Theories that were floating around. What you've described appears to be something I think a little more, perhaps Tangible. closer to what may actually be happening. Okay. So well, maybe we'll really actually be... be able to capture one in our honeypot yeah. and see what it looks like at some point in the future, and that might get us a little closer to understanding it. Mm -hmm. um, anyhow, that's another one. So, like I said, looks like a lot of there's a lot of these actors out there very hot to trot scoop up Dahua DVRs because mm -hmm. um, uh, they're targeting at least three of the top 10 ports are related to that model of DVR system. Uh, not to say it's the only one, it's not, but there are a lot of them out there. So, mm -hmm. um, All right, so with that, that's the show for today. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at atttreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech channel. It's also available on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. I'd like to thank you, Jim, for joining us this week. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, uh, Brian. And I'm John Hogeboom. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.